Welcome to the Unity Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. In this episode, Senior Pastor Heath Bauer is sharing a message on the incarnation of Christ. Today's message is entitled, Behold, the Savior Comes. Stay with us to the end to find out how you can connect to Unity Baptist Church. Christmas movie, you have to have a good villain, you have to have a protagonist, some hero that embodies some virtue, right? In our Christmas movies, we have plenty of villains. We talked last week a little bit about Ebenezer Scrooge, but there's plenty of others we could choose from. You have the Grinch, whose heart is, what, like three sizes too small or something. You could take Old Man Potter, right, from Miracle, not Miracle, uh, It's a Wonderful Life, who stole Uncle Billy's money. You could choose uh, one of any several characters. Lucy from Peanuts, can she be a villain? I mean, she's always yanking that football. Uh, Even Cindy Lou Who from The Grinch. You know, she's a a, a hero type. Uh, Fred Gailey, you probably don't know that name as much. Uh, Miracle on 34th Street, he's that lawyer who rescued Santa from being sent to the insane asylum or something like that. So we are heroes of Christmas are, are those who are actually those who are, are friendly, who are humble, who are selfless people. That's where I should have put Fred Gailey. He's not mean. He's a good guy. Bob Cratchit, we think of him. He's this humble fellow who's serving under this evil villain who only cares about himself, only cares about money. George Bailey is a hero. He's one of those that we are that we lift up because he was the one for what is it bedford falls building and loan or something and he's the one that we celebrate because he's helping out the little guy he's thinking of other people giving up so much himself Um, all of these heroes have something in common it's this humility it's a selfless concern for others there's a sense at christmas that what puts you on the naughty list is this selfishness that you only care about how things affect you. And there's an idea that the heroes of Christmas are those who are those who are thinking of others. They are completely devoid of self. They're giving of other people. We have to celebrate that. We call it the spirit of Christmas. We may not put it in these words uh, before, but the spirit of Christmas is humility. It's selflessness. It's giving. And we get that idea because the most selfless character Jesus Christ came to earth in the most selfless and humble act ever. If you haven't already turned there, turn to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to be talking about Jesus' incarnation when he took on flesh and came to earth. This series is called The Ripples of the Incarnation for a reason. When Jesus came to earth, if you will, as that great water droplet of life from, from, uh, from heaven, and he hit earth, there are ripples things that should continue to emanate from him and through his followers and through his people. Even in this very chapter in Philippians 2, the centerpiece is the incarnation that we're talking about today. But the context, the verses that come before and after the incarnation, show us the ripples. This is how Jesus' incarnation is supposed to change you and I, how it's supposed to affect us. So in Philippians chapter 2, we're going to begin talking about humility beginning in verse 5 talks about Christ saying, have this mind among yourselves, which is in Christ Jesus. What mind are we talking about? Well, last week in verse 3, we talked about how this mind that was in Jesus is lowliness of mind. 
It is humility, how Jesus would only think of other people. His coming to earth was an entirely selfless act. And he says the mind that was in Jesus should be in us, that we should be humble of heart. And as we learned last week, we talked about how being humble doesn't mean that we think less of ourselves, that we have low self-esteem, because that's not even theological, is it? God puts a very high price on you. He sees you as something beautiful, something uh, of great value, something so valuable he's willing to send his son to die in your place and in mine. And so humility isn't thinking low of yourself. It's not self-deprecation. It's not false humility when someone tries to give you a compliment. No, no, no. No, really, really, that's not true of me. Go on, go ahead. It, it, it's not false humility. It's not thinking lowly of ourselves. It's simply that we think of ourselves last. When it comes to meeting needs, we talked about in lowliness of mind, it says, esteem others better than yourselves to stop and consider and value other people and their needs more important than my own. Then he said, scope out, right? Look out for the interest of others rather than simply looking out for number one. And this is modeled in Jesus Christ. If you want an object lesson on what humility looks like, go have some fast food. Do, do a test. Okay, I'll go to any just normal plain Jane fast food restaurant. You know, go to, go to Hardee's. Don't email me if you work at Hardee's and your dad owns Hardee's. Okay, but you know, you go to Hardee's, you get a certain kind of experience, don't you? You go there and you walk up to the counter and there's nobody even there. I mean, you're looking for the bell, you know. How do I get some service here? Somebody finally looks up from their phone and they lumber over with eyes, eyes half closed and they look at you. Yeah, you know, you take your order and by that time you don't even want your quadruple burger with bacon and cheese anymore. You, you want to go somewhere else. Where do you want to go? You want to go to Chick-fil-A. And it's not because Chick-fil-A's chicken is so great, right? You want to go there for that smile, don't you? They act like they actually enjoy their job. You know, and you go up there and you go to order your, your, your chicken sandwich and your waffle fries and your, your peach, you know, frosty or whatever they serve there. And, and you get there and you order, and what do they always say when you order something? You ask them for something, they say, it's my pleasure. You've been to Chick-fil-A, haven't you? We love Chick-fil-A for that reason because everything is their pleasure and you're scratching your head because you don't see that kind of service anywhere else. It's not at Walmart. It's not, it's not even at Target. It's not at, at Hardee's or just about any other place. But at Chick-fil-A, it's my pleasure. It's my pleasure to bring me a couple Polynesian sauce. You actually take joy in, in bringing me something. But they do. It is trained into them. Humility is not natural. The natural state of man is selfishness. But humility is a learned trait. It's something that we learn by following the example of Jesus Christ. Paul learned that from Jesus. Paul exercised humility in an attribute we call flexibility. Humble people are flexible people. They're willing to bend their desires to the needs of the situation and what is most needful for other people. In 1 Corinthians 9, 19 to 22, we see Paul, he says, though I am free from all, in other words, I'm free from having to comply with what everybody wants, from me. He says, though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all people, right? That I might win more of them. Paul is saying, my pleasure. He's a, he's a Chick-fil-A Christian. He wants to serve one another. Even though he doesn't have to, he, he wants to. And he goes on, he says, to the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law that I might win those who are under the law. When working with the Jews, Paul limited his freedoms and limited what he wanted to do for what is best for other people. 
So he wasn't going to go out and, and teach these Jews about Jesus and then go out for lunch and take them to Bubba Gump's you know, shrimp fest. He's not going to do that because they still think that they're under the law and shrimp is, is an unclean animal. So Paul has a right to eat shrimp but he's going to limit that freedom when he's around the Jews. In Acts chapter 21, we see that Paul, he also chose to follow strict ritual purification, that part of the ceremonial law that God did away with. The moral law continues, and Paul followed that, but the ceremonial law, Paul didn't have to follow, but he did it when he was working with the Jews. Why? Because my comfort is, more, is not nearly as important as the gospel amongst these Jewish people, and so he limited his freedoms. 1 Corinthians 9, he goes on. He says, to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. Who's outside the law? He's talking about you and I, Gentiles. We didn't grow up under the Jewish law. He says, I became as one outside of the law so that I might win those outside of the law. So Paul, Paul changed himself. Now, when Paul says that I become all things to all men that I might win some, I don't want you to picture Paul in skinny jeans with a cigar and drinking craft beer and cussing and getting a tattoo in Hebrew that says fear not. We're not talking about changing your external appearance. We're talking about changing your rights, your sense of what belongs to you. We're not talking about looking like the world to win the world. We're talking about acting like Jesus to win the world. It's a very, very different concept. And so when Paul was working in Gentile areas, he limited himself. Paul had a right to earn money from what he did. The Bible says it all over the place. You know, the do not, it says, do not muzzle the ox while he treads out the corn. The ox that's working the field has a right to eat from that field. Elsewhere in Galatians 6, it talks about how let him who is taught the word, that's you, share in all good things, that's money, with him who teaches, that's me, okay? You are supposed to share. That's why you support me. You support me as a pastor. It allows me to now give my life fully to you as a family. I'm not saying make me rich, but friends, we, we take care of those who are in leadership so that they can serve you fully. Paul had a right to that. Now, when he was in certain Gentile areas, they had false teachers who would adopt disciples to themselves because they wanted to use religion not to support their family, but to make a fortune. It's a good thing we don't have that today anymore, people who use religion to make a fortune. Just turn on the TV, right? But that happened in those days. So in those areas where Paul thought, this is going to hinder my gospel witness to take my, the money that is a right to me to support, my, to support myself, right? Paul said, instead, I'm going to, make, I'm going to build tents. And so Paul limited his freedoms when he was working with those outside the law. He said, to the weak, I became as the weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people, that I might save some. When Paul was working with people who are weak, he's not talking about people who don't work out. He's talking about those with a weak conscience. Their conscience is easily wounded, easily offended at every little thing, at things that God's word does not get offended by. Their conscience gets offended. We attach a moral value to something that isn't a moral right or wrong. It's just my preference. And so they're easily offended about things. So in Paul's day, one of those things that Christians were easily offended about was meat offered to idols. So you would have this idol temple and there was meat that you would go and you would consume this meat and you would enter into this relationship with this false god. And, but that meat didn't always get used. And so what didn't get used was unloaded into the open market where it could be bought very, very cheaply. And, and some of you Christians like me, you're looking for the bargain, okay? And they see this cheap meat in the, in the market there and they're saying, hey, we can buy this meat very discounted. Let's, let's go ahead and do that, be a good steward of money. And, Paul, you know, and that's okay because they're not entering the communion with a false idol. 
But there were some Christians who says, if that ever set foot in the temple, it's, it's tainted forever and you can't eat it or you're communing with a false god. Well, it's not true. But some Christians made a rule beyond God's word and their conscience was easily wounded and affected. So what, is, what did Paul do? He did not eat the discounted meat around those whom it offended. He limited his rights. He was humble. Why? So that by all means I might save some. The chief purpose of Paul's life was not just to bless himself, to gain things for himself, to gain glory for himself or money for himself. The chief purpose of his life was that I might save some. His life was gospel-focused. And when our life is gospel-focused and gospel-centered, we don't care about little inconveniences to myself. I... He must increase, like John the Baptist said, but I must. I must decrease. I am not that important any longer. Philippians 2.5 reminds us that have this mind, which was first exemplified in Christ Jesus, have this mind in you. That we're supposed to think the same way as Jesus and as Paul did. Jesus, who left the comforts of heaven. I mean, imagine it. Never, no more sickness, no more dying, no more pain. And he came to earth, and he took on this sack of chemicals that we wear, and he endured pain and suffering and starvation and hardship. He who is in the throne of heaven, where angels surround the throne continually, singing holy, holy, holy and praising his name, he came to earth where he was mocked, scorned, ridiculed. He was called a, a, a drunkard, a blasphemer. He's called all these names. He left the Father's continual approval in that intimate relationship to come to earth and die on a cross where God turns his back on Jesus as he bore your sin and mine on upon himself. And he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's humility. It's not that you think lowly of yourself. It's that your chief purpose in life is not to serve yourself, but to serve those around you for the glory of God. That was Jesus' example. And he says, let this mind be in you. First Peter 2 says the same thing. For to this you have been called, because Christ Jesus suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. We don't just worship Jesus for being humble, we follow his lead, don't we? That's the message of Christmas. Number two, humility releases personal rights. Look at verse six. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, for Jesus to exist in the form of God, it doesn't mean that he was something less than God. He was not JV God, like the, the Jehovah's Witnesses will tell you. He's mighty God, but not almighty God. Okay, Jesus was fully God. In fact, this very phrase shows that. Being in the form of something, there's two Greek words for form. The one that's talking about here is something that is in the continual, unchanging nature of someone or something. Jesus is the exact same essential nature as God is, and that never changed. That's what he's communicating here. It means Jesus is equal with God, like Hebrews 1.3 says, that he is the exact imprint of God's nature, that every detail that makes God God is found fully in Jesus. It's like what Colossians 2 says, in him the whole fullness of the Godhead dwells where? In his body. That though Jesus is, if you will, contained in some ways in a body, the whole fullness, all that makes up God is possessed in him. He's not less than God. He is fully and entirely God. And yet, being God, Jesus had, Jesus had certain divine privileges being God. But it says that he did not see these divine privileges as something to be grasped, something to be held on to. The idea of grasping something means it's something you love so much you refuse to let it go. 
It, you, you, and that's why some of your translations call it, he thought it not robbery to be equal with God. You're clutching something so greatly that if somebody stole it, you'd, you'd consider it robbery. You'd be offended. You'd be mad rather than something you're willing to freely give away. Jesus didn't see his divine privileges as something to hold on to greedily. I will not give it up. I want you to think of like uh, Smeagol from the Lord of the Rings, right? What's he clutching? My precious, right? He's, he's hanging on to it. He's willing to kill for it. It's what's dear to him. He's going to hang on to what is his. It belongs to him. And in his greed, he becomes this ugly, filthy, foul, vile, weird-talking little creature. And that's what happens to a human when we become greedy and self-centered. We are Smeagol hanging on to something. But Jesus, he didn't grasp it. That which belonged rightfully to him, he didn't grasp his divine privileges. I could do this, but I'm willing not to. I'm willing to allow God to put things in my life and for God to take them away and be just as happy with God. It's like Job, the Lord gives, and sometimes the Lord takes away. But I'm still going to say, blessed be the name of the Lord, because the purpose of my life is not my comfort in what I acquire. The purpose of my life is to be like Jesus. So the example for us is don't hang on to things so tightly that the greatest freedom and joy we can experience this Christmas is not to stress out about what God might be trying to take away. We can't clutch onto these things here on earth like Smeagol with his ring and say, it's mine, it's precious, you can't take it, something that we're willing to kill for. The greatest joy in a believer's life is learning to see everything in our life with an open hand. Not grasping it, but following Jesus' example. We have an open hand. God can put something in and he can take it out and I'm still gonna find joy because everything here on earth is rented anyway. You don't keep any of it, do we? It's all, it's all gonna disappear. Peter says it's all gonna burn up with fervent heat. And so I'm not gonna stress out about what I do or don't have this Christmas, do or don't get this Christmas. Open-handedly I live. Romans 12 says that we find this joy not in serving ourselves, but in serving one another. He says, love one another with brotherly affection, just like family, because you are family. He says, then outdo one another in showing honor. Outdo one another has the idea that we're competing, we're taking the lead in, we're initiating something in showing honor to one another. It's saying that the most honorable life we can live is by giving that honor to other people. Now, that's not really something that's embedded in American culture much. A lot of times in America, we're, we're striving, we're climbing to be better and greater and stronger and wealthier and more esteemed than the people around us. That's, that's part of just sort of our American dream is climbing that corporate ladder, right? But the Bible says that instead we are to outdo one another in showing honor, giving that honor away. I'll tell you where I've seen that most closely resembled is there are aspects of Chinese culture. We lived in China for over a decade. And we saw a number of things where part of their 5,000-year culture is the greatest honor a man can have is to give honor to someone else. And I could give you plenty of examples. The one I'm going to give you is I'm going to make it practical. Just in case Maymay invites you guys over for a, a tea in our church, okay, and she wants to give you tea, and she's going to celebrate with you, you know, Merry Christmas or Happy New Year, and, you know, in your clink glasses or whatever. In Chinese culture, the top of your tea glass represents that which is sacred. It touches your lips, it touches your mouth, and the, the, the less sacred part of your cup is the part that touches the filthy table. So when you pick up that tea glass and maybe you clink them together, how you clink those together shows honor or receives honor. 
So when those glasses finally clink and touch, the glass that is higher than the other glass has received the honor. And so you know what they'll often do in Chinese culture is you will compete to try to clink lower on the other person's cup. I've seen full-grown adult men get up from the table and they'll go all the way down to the floor as they are trying, no, 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 let me show honor as they're getting down there. Pretty soon they're laughing at each other because they're outdoing one another. No, allow me to show you the honor. The idea in the culture was the most honorable person is he who gives it away. That's part of our Christian culture. The greatest honor we can have is by giving that honor away to other people, not trying to get it for ourselves. Instead, humility serves other people. Look at verse 7. It says, But Jesus emptied himself, taking upon himself the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. This is the Christmas message. Jesus is born in the likeness of men. And in doing that, Jesus did something very special. It says he emptied himself. This Greek word empty is kanuo. We get the, the Greek word, uh, or the word theological word, kenosis from it, the emptying of Christ. Now, sometimes we get a false idea of what Jesus emptied himself of. He did not empty himself of his deity. Jesus is fully God and fully man, united in one body without confusion forever, okay? Jesus did not empty himself of his deity as some false teachers will teach. What did Jesus empty himself? That's the real question. Jesus emptied himself of his rights, his divine privileges, what he could do, what he had a right to do. Jesus, it says, he emptied himself. He just dumped it all out. He's going to surrender control of his divine power to the Father. Jesus showed divine power, didn't he, on earth? He showed omniscience. He told Nathaniel, I saw you under the tree. We saw him feed the 5,000. We saw him raise the dead to life. Jesus was fully God on earth, and yet he wouldn't simply do miracles willy-nilly as it, as it seemed good for him. That was the very temptation of Jesus too, wasn't it? Satan says, you're pretty hungry, aren't you? 40 days of not eating. How many of us have done that? 40 days of not eating, he says, why don't you make these, these, these stones here into bread? Could Jesus do it? He could do it, couldn't he? But Jesus would not. Why not? Because that would be to break the kenosis. Jesus' self-renunciation, his willingness, willingness to deny himself and give up what he wanted to do, fleshly speaking, because he had surrendered the use of his powers to the Father. It's that same kenosis that forced Jesus to his knees at Gethsemane to pray, not my will, but yours be done. That's the kenosis. It's that emptying of himself, of what he had a right to do. And instead, he took upon himself the form of what? a servant. That's pretty amazing to think of the creator God of the universe taking on the form of a servant. It might look something like this. The creator puts a towel around his waist and gets on his knees and washes the feet of his disciples. How disgusting is that? It's a complete reversal of roles because a disciple in those days was somebody who served his master. You would line yourself up under a master and he would teach you. You would follow him, he would, you would observe his ways, he would give you great instruction and wisdom, and in exchange, you did his laundry. You got him coffee. Uh, you did chores and tasks and things for him. Jesus, instead, is serving the disciple. It's completely wrong in all their eyes. It's why, why Peter's like, no, no, you will never, you're not gonna wash my feet. It's, it's, it just feels completely wrong. But Jesus surpassed what a normal servant would even do. 
there were a lot of things you could compel your servant to do. You could get him to dig post, hole, you know, post holes for you and make a fence. You could get him to go get water from the well in the middle of the day if you needed to. You could make him do just about anything. Shovel manure from the animals. You could get your servant to do that. But there's something that a Jew would never ask of his servant because it was considered too vile. It was to wash someone's feet. You see, in that culture, often in Middle Eastern and Asian cultures, the head is considered something that is glorious, and the feet are considered something that is very ignoble. It's that which connects you to the earth. We found that out in Thailand, didn't we, girls? You, the head, you don't get to walk up to a little Thai kid. You see a little kid, you go over there as an American tourist, you think this is funny and cute, you see a kid with fun hair, and you just want to run your hands across the hair. That's highly offensive to the Thai, because the head is the glory of a person. Likewise, your feet are very unholy. Okay? So you would never, if you're laying on the couch with your wife or something, you would never tap her on you know, with your foot. Hey, 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 get up. You would never touch someone with your foot. You wouldn't point with your foot or bump someone with your foot. You would never even sit in a way so as to show somebody the sole of your foot. It means that you hate that person. You've disregarded them. You're showing them the worst part of you. If you were to drop uh, some Thai bot, their money, and, and that paper would start to fly away and on the ground, our first instinct is to do what? It's to stomp on it. But you see, on the money is the face of their king whom they have deified. And now you've taken the most unholy part of you and you have stomped on the face of their deified king. So there's certain things you had to learn about that culture. As Americans, we hear about somebody washing feet. We're like, boy, that's kind of gross, isn't it? <laughs> but no, it was highly offensive. You wouldn't even ask a servant to do that. And here's Jesus washing the feet of his disciples, doing something that you would not even ask a regular old plain Jane servant to do, and the God, creator God of the universe is doing that. What's the, what's the takeaway for us then? It's that there's no job too low for Jesus, so there's no job too low for us. Is there any job here in this church or in the ministry that we do that's too low for anybody here? Am I too good to serve children Kool-Aid and VBS because I'm a high-powered businessman outside of the church? Because I'm a judge or a policeman or a doctor or something, then I can't clean a bathroom toilet in the church? There's no job too great for us. If Creator God can, can come down and serve and do something even a servant wouldn't do, there's no job that is below me or beneath me. And most of us, we hear these things and we say, yeah, you know, our heads are nodding. Yeah, amen, I get it, I understand. That's that's true, but this is the classroom. Can I give you a lab assignment? Can we blow something up this week? What I want you to do is, at the bottom of your bulletins, you wanna flip over your bulletins, at the very bottom, there's a little phrase there, and I want you to fill that out. Maybe you wanna fill it out during our time of reflection today, maybe you wanna fill it out at home over lunch, maybe you want a discussion with somebody. But it simply says this, if Jesus can wash men's feet, then I can blank and I want you to add something for somebody. If Jesus can wash men's feet, and you now know how just ignoble that was, I can now do this for someone else. And Jesus did it for those closest to him, his disciples. So if you're married today, I want you to fill that out, but put your mate's name in there. If, I can, if Jesus can wash men's feet, then I can wash and massage the feet of my wife. You know, and that's probably exactly what she wants, frankly. Do you want to just vote for that? Okay, she loves that. She loves foot massage. Okay, so it needs to be on the level of Jesus humbling himself to do this act of service. Don't just throw money at your mate. 
Don't just take her out to barbecue. That's where you were going anyway. You were going down to Smoking Jays to get a full rack of ribs. We're not talking about that. Or, hey, honey, I saw you eyeing that new table saw at Lowe's this week. <laughs> Don't use this as an occasion for the flesh. Make this an act of service on the level of Jesus washing feet and think of something good to do for your mate. What if you're a child you're living, or, or a teen or an you know, adult living at home? Serve your mother or father. If there's multiple kids, you can divvy up. Do something for mom. Some of you do something for dad. But do something, an act of service that is on the level of Jesus washing feet. It's shocking. It's amazing. It's, it stands out as just this very humble act of service in love. Now, here's the problem. You may do this. What if, what if your child doesn't do it? What if your mate doesn't do it? Is our obedience dependent upon the obedience of other people? First John says, we love. Why? Because God first loved us. The only reason I need to serve someone else is because God loved me first. If they never do anything back for me, it's okay. So number four, <clears throat> we're going to see that humility dies to oneself. <clears throat> in verse 8, <clears throat> it says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross shows the extent of Jesus' death. He didn't just die. He died on a cross. Jesus died. Now, to you and I, that's white noise as a Christian. Yeah, I've heard this message about Jesus dying all my life. But consider the message of John 14, 6. Jesus calls himself three different things. I am the way. I am the truth, and I am what? The life. Jesus is the very embodiment of life. The reason we have eternal life is because we are baptized by the Holy Spirit into the life of Jesus Christ. He who is our very life had to die. Can you imagine how humiliating that was for him? He who is alive, who is life, he died. But not even just a normal death. The extent of Jesus' death was he died on the cross, a worse death than any of us will ever face. Jesus came and suffered shame. He was, he was beaten. He was stripped naked. You know, we, we see these oil paintings in these fancy art galleries of Jesus. He has the loincloth on. That wasn't there. I'm, I'm grateful it is, but I just want you to know that wasn't there. He was completely shamed. You see Jesus on the, in these oil paintings. He looks like he got in a fight with a cat. That's not the Jesus of the crucifixion. Jesus of crucifixion, I want you to think of the passion of the Christ. Can you watch that movie more than once? My wife will encourage me to watch that every year, and I'm just, I cringe because I can't stand watching my Lord get beaten and destroyed. But that is what he looked like. The Bible says he was beaten so badly, you couldn't recognize him as human. Even the death on the cross. So what does it look like for us to follow down that Via Dolorosa path with him? Luke 29, or 9, 23 to 24 says, if anyone would come after me, in other words, you want to be my disciple? You want to say you're a Christian? You want to say you're a follower of me? Do this. He says, let him deny himself. Do you know what that word deny himself is? It's a personal kenosis. If anyone wants to follow Jesus, he says, let him deny himself. Let him deny himself of all the privileges that he has. Let him put his needs last. Let him put others first, living the same kind of life that Jesus lived. If you want to be a Christian, this is the price. Not to earn your salvation, but because you have it. But whoever, he says, whoever will save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. 
that it defines what a Christian is like, the kind of person who's willing to deny himself and to take up his cross every single day, an instrument of death, to die to my desires and my rights and what I have a, a right to do, that, that's the kind of person who's saved. They will save their life. You know, we hear this. This is not a popular message, is it? This is not, you wanted to hear a message about the baby Jesus and how he brings you peace today. But this is the message of Christmas. It's the incarnation and how we are to allow the ripples of the incarnation to affect our life. We hear a message on humility and it feels like the most self-destructive thing that a person can do. But instead, it's quite the opposite. When we choose to live a humble life of serving one another, what does God promise? Exaltation. So number five, humility leads to exaltation. Verses nine to 11 says, therefore, because Jesus was willing to renounce himself and live humbly, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. So Jesus' name, once associated with, with hatred and disdain, can anything good come from Nazareth? Is this not Jesus, Joseph's son, who we know? Isn't he some drunkard, some blasphemer? Jesus' name, which was, was drugged through the mud, those who shouted, crucify him, will one day sh shout and call him Lord. A little too late, but they will call him Lord. How many knees? Every knee. Knees in heaven, the highest of angelic powers and beings will announce him as Lord. Those on earth, every human, <clears throat> including every atheist that ever lived, Hitler, Nero, all the way up to Stephen Hawking. Knees under the earth, those who have already died and gone on. Even demonic and satanic powers will one day not confess him as Lord to be saved, but simply acknowledge what is obviously true. This is the Lord of the universe. Jesus, through his humility, was exalted by God. Now, when we follow the example of Jesus and we humble ourselves and we take upon ourselves the form of a servant, will God exalt us someday as well? He will, won't he? You see, when God sees humility in you and in me, God likes that. It reminds him of a certain person. It reminds him of his son. And God loves to exalt people that serve one another and are humble people just like Jesus. Is there scripture to back that up? I can give you a couple. James 4.10 says, humble yourselves before the Lord what will he do? He will exalt you. 1 Peter 5, 6 says, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that the proper time, in other words, not now, now is not our time of exaltation, but at the proper time, he may exalt you. Jesus said, the greatest among you will be what? The servant of all. That's the message of Christmas. That's the ripple of this incarnation. If we're truly going to be like Jesus, we're going to be humble servants of one another. And it's through that that we will truly find the glory that our heart longs for. It's in outdoing one another to show honor to one another. That really is the spirit of Christmas, isn't it? That is the message of Christmas. You can't get away from it. Even if you're an atheist and you try to pluck Jesus out of Christmas, it's almost like we still have to honor somebody who's just like him right? Who are we talking about? Santa Claus, right? He knows when you're, he sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He's omniscient. He knows if you've been bad or good. He holds to a moral standard, and he's going to hold you accountable to it. 
So be good for goodness sake, because he's going to bring you coal or some other, you know, there, there's, there's pain for those who do evil and there's good for those who do good. So even when we pluck Jesus out of Christmas, we still have to honor somebody who represents what Jesus honored. You know, the original Santa was an actual person. He was the fourth century bishop of Myra called St. Nicholas. And we all know this. Here's the fellow. Uh, he did have a white beard. He did wear a hat, probably not, the, not like the one you wore, uh, got from Hobby Lobby and wore to the party. You try wearing this one to a party at Christmas sometime and see what folks have to say. He did ride in a sleigh, not pulled by reindeer, but just conventional horses, and he was widely reputed as a giver of gifts. Now, this particular fellow, Nicholas, he had a hard time, as was often with great men. Growing up, he lost both parents. I mean, just imagine, he lost both parents. And he grew up during Diocletian's rule, which was a time of tremendous persecution on those who would call themselves Christian. He also grew up in a time where doctrinal heresies were assaulting the early church, threatening to destroy the church in its infant stages. Little, little fun fact here about St. Nick. Uh, at the Council of Nicaea, where they were discussing the nature and character of who Jesus is, you had a fellow named Arius who was denying the deity of Christ. You all know what St. Nick did? He's reputed as walking up to Arius and just slapping himself, just across the guy right across the face. Try putting that on a Hallmark card. <laughs> you all know Santa Claus. He's a defender of the truth. St. Nick, he did all kinds of other things. He's known better for his, his humility in life. He lost both parents, received this tremendous fortune to himself, but he didn't keep it to himself. He would always give it away. He saved men from prison and from being executed wrongly. He, there's stories about him. Some of the more famous stories, there's a fellow who had three daughters, and he had to have a dowry to give away so that your daughter could get married. They didn't have it, so the family was doomed. He's reputed as going at night to the chimney, dropping a bag of gold down there, and supposedly it fell into a stocking hung by the fire, and now you have Santa connected with stockings and, and chimneys and all that kind of stuff, okay? And he did it so this daughter could get married, and for the second daughter, and then for the third daughter, this man was hiding and waiting because he wanted to thank this secret benefactor, and he caught him, and he was, he was shocked because Nicholas wanted to remain anonymous. He just wanted a humble act of service. But even through his humble acts of service, everybody would exalt and lift up this man for showing kindness and love and selflessness. That's what happens when one lives a humble life. We want to lift up those people. But people like Old Man Potter, we're still complaining that Old Man Potter never got his at the end of the movie. We still want to see people just go over there and throw Old Man Potter in jail. We want to see evil done away with. We want to see righteousness exalted. And that is the message of Christmas, is that through humility, we follow Jesus' example, and it's only through that that God truly exalts anybody. It's through following his example. Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that at the proper time, not now, but later, by faith, he will exalt you. Let's remember that this Christmas. Let's go home. Remember your lab assignment this week. I will ask you next week if you have finished your lab assignment. Find somebody to serve this week. Have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, for our invitation time, we're, instead we're going to be doing the Lord's Supper. Okay, so during this time, remember what the Lord's Supper is all about. It's a time of self-reflection of God to examine your heart for what you aren't doing that you should, that you should do 
that you shouldn't be. And it's a time to make our hearts right before the Lord to enjoy this Lord's table together as his family. Can we do that? As I pray, if we can have the deacons come forward to receive the Lord's Supper together. Father, we thank you today that we can take the Lord's Supper, that we can rejoice in the fact that despite the, the fact that we have, we have hurt you and, and, and offended a great and holy and infinite God, that you have made a way to bring us back to yourself. God, that you have shown in us in the nature of Jesus and through his sacrifice the most humble act that anyone could ever perform. And Lord, that through a relationship with him, we can live the same kind of life of humility and, and even someday enjoy being exalted in him and with him. Father, that we can enjoy unbroken fellowship with you for all eternity. But today, God, we recognize that there could be some broken fellowship today. People who don't know you, God, I pray that they would seek one of us out at the end of the service to ask how they might know how they can have eternal life. For the rest of us, Father, I pray that you would use this time to bring up in our hearts those things which we're doing and shouldn't or shouldn't be doing and are. God, that we might not take of the Lord's Supper unworthily, not discerning the Lord's body, that we're not living for the very thing for which Christ died, and that is a life of sin. So God, as we take of this, help us to examine our hearts to make sure that we are in a right relationship with you today. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. It is our prayer that this has been an encouragement to you. If you're interested in our gathering times or just want more information about Unity, you can connect with us at unitybaptistashland.com or on Facebook at UBC Ashland. Join us next week as we open God's Word together.